0: From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's been a while since my guest was last here. It was the second season of Shit's Creek, which was only carried on pop TV here in the States. But since that show, Daniel Levy has gone on to make quite a career for himself and had quite a career before that. Uh, his newest project for Netflix, which he wrote, directed and stars in, and I'm guessing picked all the music, is the film Good Grief. Dan, thanks so much for being here. I'm so happy
1: to be back. How are you?
0: I'm um, happy to be talking to you. And it's so funny because I think about the beginning of Shit's Creek where they're sitting on that sofa and that portrait's being taken away from them. And both these projects start with a home being pulled away from a protagonist.
1: Interesting that. I wonder what that says. That's something I have to take to a therapist. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You've just cracked open a whole portal of self-discovery. Okay, I'll take that. That sounds
0: vaguely <laughs> like a compliment, <laughs> but I think it it's, is. it's fascinating because these have both been two projects that in their way have dealt with grief and an enormous loss. And one is played for comedy and the other's played for, I think, comic melodrama. But I think it's fascinating these are two areas that you've returned to as a writer.
1: Yeah, you know, they seem to kind of bookend each other a little bit, both dealing with people who have lost Things that are very important to them, obviously different priorities, different people. The loss of a husband is is very different than the the Rose family losing their mansion. But I think, in a way, it was like one is the re- is a reaction to the other. I think coming out out of eighty episodes of writing a comedy, I had this strong desire to explore something totally different. And while the subject matter is couldn't be more opposing, yeah, there's there's some definitely some overlap in terms of the kinds of stories that I was telling between the two and it felt like a I, I I really feel like it was they were two stories that had to kind of bookend each other in order for me to move on a little bit
0: there's certainly bookends there but I think they're both. About a kind of a a spiritual awakening, because by the last season of Schitt's Creek, it didn't really play so much as as a kind of broad comedy anymore. It's definitely a show about maturation, and I find with Good Grief, and I'm sure you've heard this from a number of people before, I find myself thinking of The Wizard of Oz, and those three characters between you know Mark and 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 Thomas and Sophie represent the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. It's it's fascinating to me.
1: You know, I've never gotten that before, but it's. It's so true now that you've said it, each of them representing a, a different kind of adventure, a need that gets explored and and um and kind of dissected over the course of the, the movie. And yeah, I mean, in a way, I, I really I saw the movie as 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 a kind of adventure for Mark. Adventure might be kind of diminishing the you know, like emotional weight of his experience, but I wanted it to feel like a journey for him of of discovery, not just self discovery, but also discovery of other people's pain as well. I, I, I liked the idea that every character in this movie revealed a side of grief to Mark that he he wasn't aware of, and that at the end, he, as an audience, you kind of take away this idea that the grief is all around us, and there's there's kind of comfort in that. There's a community in that. It's a similar Oz thing now that you've said it. We're five minutes into this chat and my mind is blown open.
0: Well, I mean, I think there's so much what you do as a writer is through either comedy or through drama, find the ways that people have to come to recognize things in themselves. And clearly, working out emotional growth is important to you as a dramatist.
1: I just love it. I love the idea of peeling the layers back on a person, slowly but surely, and having someone that we've, that we come to know at the beginning, be someone completely different by the end without having changed too much. I think growth is like, it's the richest place for me to pull from certainly as a writer. And I think that's the, that's the amazing thing about aging is that the older you get, the more you learn about yourself. And this movie is, is very much a a result of my friendships deepening the older i've gotten i'm now 40 so looking back to my my 20s and and looking at the relation the quality of the relationships that i had with my friends and i've always I, i've had relationships over the course of 20 years but i've predominantly been like single and when you don't have a partner and you don't have a kid your friendships become the loves of your life and and analyzing how those friendships have deepened from my 20s to my 30s, and now I'm now I'm 40, it, it felt like an untapped world to explore in, in movies. We we often look at friendships in film as things that exist on the sidelines, but are not often given the real estate that they deserve. And so looking back on my friendships, particularly through my 30s they devolved and they changed and they've they kind of became way more textured and way richer and more interesting and and founded in something that was really just you just get deeper the older you get with your friends because they know you better and the stakes of your lives get higher and and everything means a little more and the conversations and the conflicts and the conflict resolutions i was having with my friends were were way different than they were in my 20s and that to me was was the first thing I thought about after Schitt's Creek was making sure that the next thing I do celebrate the quality of those friendships like that. And then in this particular case, grief came into my life and I sort of overlaid the exploration of grief onto this this desire to tell a story about friendship. And that's where the movie came from.
0: It's The Treatment. We're talking friendships with Dan Levy. I'm glad he's back. His newest project for Netflix is a film he wrote, directed, and starred in Good Grief. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash The Treatment. There's a thing that you said that I feel that in both these projects in the way about, and I hate to sort of keep, sort of bisecting them, but i gotta get away from that in a few minutes, but they're both about growth that is incremental. And I want to ask you, having done a TV show where you get to deal with characters in ways that are, you're actually moving them almost cubic centimeters rather than miles, which movies have to do. If that sort of prepares you for the intimacy of doing the story where, as you were saying, the growth is notable by the end, but it's incremental rather than being the kind of leaps we see in movies.
1: The greatest gift we were given on Schitt's Creek was time. I don't think we would have been able to connect with an audience as deeply as we did if we were forced to tell those stories in a shorter period of time. I think it was time that allowed the slow growth and allowed the audience to warm to our characters like slowly but surely. I think it was time that allowed us to lay the foundation to really earn those big emotional moments that people have come to love about the show. I don't think they would have hit quite as hard. I don't think they would have meant quite as much if we weren't afforded the time to really lay them out carefully and slowly and surely. So, of course, I think 80 episodes of a television show, I mean, so much of yourself gets put into it and you get to experiment with... In my case, with the idea of riding that line between comedy and sentimentality and making sure that you never cross it or that you never take advantage of one or the other, that that tone is really carefully respected. So I think coming into this movie, I I felt like equipped with the experience of just writing at this point and feeling confident in a slightly more challenging tone, which is... You know, essentially the inverse of *Shit's Creek*, which is a drama with with moments of comedy, as opposed to a comedy with moments of of drama. Yeah, I I don't think I would have made this movie uh, on on any level had it not been for the time that I had on *Shit's Creek*, both as a writer and an actor and a director. It's been nice to to be able to go from something that I loved into something way more personal and and know that they're connected in that way.
0: I guess what I find too. With the film, I mean, there's so much assurance in it from the very beginning. I mean, it really just those opening notes that Ella Fitzgerald that bring us into the movie that are about tone before we even really see anything. And that to me sort of speaks of the confidence you have and letting us know who these people are immediately in terms of defining them by need rather than anything Mm. else, which I thought was fascinating because those needs again we get a little more insight every time we see them and how those needs can push people away or how those needs blind them really i mean cuz so much of what you've done as a writer and i'm fascinated by this is dealing with the way self-absorption is pulled away from people
1: it's in all of us a little bit i think some of us are better at containing it than others i will always be fascinated by that how how ego plays a part in, in our lives how it has the capacity to Control us, or how we eventually gather the skills to control it. And it also is a, I think, particularly in that first 15 minutes of the movie, the Christmas party, I just have such an aversion to exposition. It creeps me out, the feeling inclined to have characters describe themselves. It's like the least (laughs) realistic thing. (laughs) Nobody does it, it's the show don't tell. And so for me, the big challenge of that first 15 minutes was doing my best to show these characters for who they are, flaws and all, without having them proclaim it. They can proclaim it in other ways. You know, (laughs) they they can proclaim it in a variety of ways. I mean, you know, Ruth Nega right off the top of the movie is, is proclaiming who she is in a very clear way without explicitly saying so.
0: That's the fun of it to me, too, is that it's gently funny, but it's also having these characters sort of proclaim their kind of appetites without ridiculing them, which is, I think, a really kind of a a tough piece of material to massage. And you could have made fun of these people. And there's even a way, because they do kind of explain themselves, but in the way that I come to associate with screwball comedy, which is over-explaining a part of themselves... You know it, that that facet that just really defines them, and sort of saying too much about it in a way that I just find to be sort of uniquely comic.
1: Yeah, and being blindly naive to the to the more glaring parts of their personality that they should be paying attention. To. Um, um. Which is which is just life. You have to love the characters you're writing. You have to love them through everything, and if you don't, that's when I think you can slip into judgment, and. Being aware of the kind of architecture of of the characters is so important. Being aware of their flaws before you even start writing. Understanding where you're going to compromise. Like as a writer, it's always tough because I, everyone I write about, I I care about really deeply. And, and And yet there are moments where you have to make really tough calls on behalf of your characters that you don't like but that are inevitable for them to realize that they have some growing to do. You know, I I look back on the breaking up Ted and Alexis at the end of Schitt's Creek, and that was a hugely divisive thing in our writer's room. But it came from a love of the character of Alexis rather than a love of the audience. Because if we had chosen the audience over the real needs of the characters and a love for our characters, we would have kept them together. But I don't think that would have served the character. To me, that's the joy of writing, is finding yourselves in those moments when you have to put your characters in situations that you don't love, but that you know will, will shape them in, in really constructive ways down the line. And I think this movie was certainly, certainly kind of pushed that even further in terms of, not treating any of these characters with like special gloves and really putting them through the ringer when they need when they need that kind of rude awakening.
0: We're going to take a break. My guest, who probably in addition to all those other things he said, blows to thwart expectation, is Dan Levy. His new <laughs> film, as writer, director, and star, is the comedy drama Good Grief on Netflix. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. My guest, who's still making sense, is Dan Levy. His new <laughs> film for Netflix is Good Grief. Uh, it's a treatment where you can also go dot com slash the treatment. And here's what I wanted to first talk to you about, which I think is really kind of a thing that delights me about the work, is that the titles you choose have associations that we have to get past. I mean, Good Grief, we'll just talk about that, is something that most of us mm-hmm. associate with Peanuts and Charlie Brown and... Charles Schultz. And not only that, but by starting at Christmas, you're really pushing what we think of when we hear Good Grief. And certainly there are associations with Shit's Creek, obviously. And there's a a playfulness about the way words are used and defined people that starts with the title for you,
1: doesn't it? Well, it's interesting. In this particular case, the title came last. I remember finishing the script and then thinking, oh, no. (laughs) I have to name it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the the list was long, and the list was bad. And then it came to me, and I I just thought it, it it was an instant thing. I loved how it subverted the the kind of sweetness of what we've come to associate good grief with, and I love how it spoke so cleanly to what we were exploring in the movie that there is the potential for good to come from grief. That you know, quite literally. So. I just loved what it did. I loved how it, in in a way, could trick an audience into into thinking it, it it's one thing and then slowly understanding that it has a, a deeper meaning. And yeah, I mean, Schitt's Creek was, we had from day one. We had it from day one. And um, I can tell you firsthand, a lot of people did not like it, including many networks in America.
0: Clearly for you. And just the way the characters express themselves, and there's so spe- there's such specific word choice. And as somebody as I I know who is a lover of pop and all of its discontents, and the song choices are about word choice too. And what we hear from mm-hmm. those songs in the, in the film, and I know as somebody who loves and respects the medium, that. The idea of making sure that words land the way you want them to, we can hear the craft and the, and the calculation, It's and it's really a pleasure.
1: Music, to me, has always influenced my writing since I started. I always put playlists together before I start writing anything. There's always kind of a, a playlist of songs that I'll throw together just to kind of create Uh, a tone. And oftentimes I see scenes, I see moments, I see emotional tone by way of the music that I'm listening to. And um, certainly in Schitt's Creek, music played a a huge part of of the, the slow easing into the emotionality of the show. And all of that was thought about in advance. All of those songs that we played, I would say the majority of the songs that we ended up, the needle drops in Schitt's Creek, were all part of a playlist that I had put together before we even started writing. And the same with this film. So, yeah, music is so important. It helps me create a, a vibe for every scene. And oftentimes there'll be songs that I'll put on over and over and over and over again. And the more I listen to them, the more a scene comes to life. And then I'll sit down and start writing it. Susan Kent was the music supervisor on this. She's amazing. And we basically... Just had a great time of I sent her my playlist. she sent me songs. we we must have auditioned. oh my God, hundreds of songs for the opening of the of the film. Wow. We must have auditioned like probably 50 different songs for the end of the film going over coming out of that dinner scene in in Paris and going into the into the Tuileries. Um, we landed on uh, Neil Young. In the end, which was a surprise, frankly, there was a what Robin a... song. There was a Robin song in there, but there's a Robin song in the movie, isn't there? There is a Robin song in the movie. I had to just honor her in some in some way. So we, I'm glad that we were able to put one in. But tonally, by the time that we had kind of gotten the movie to where we wanted it to be, the the tone of that of of Robin in that moment didn't really work as well as something slightly more emotive, something slightly more personal. And then when we put in this Neil Young song, it just worked. And that's the amazing thing about playing with music and movies is you, you can lay over different, different tunes to different scenes and it completely changes. Not surprisingly, everything about the scene. (laughs) It's like to choose your own adventure. So ultimately, you just have to land on what you think is the best emotional tone match of music to picture. And we were very lucky that Mr. Young allowed us to to use the song.
0: The days of much music and MTV are kind of over. But I think movies and TV have supplanted using music and image in a way that I think is much more subtle. I think can get points across in a much more uh, evocative way than just trying to find an image that relates to the lyric. And Mm -hmm. I think that this has been something that you got a particular pleasure out of playing with as a filmmaker.
1: Absolutely. Music is like, it's the starting point for me. That's it. I can't imagine doing it without, frankly. So I don't know what that says, (laughs) Um, but I value, I value songwriters oftentimes more than actual like screenwriters in terms of inspiration and, and people that I've, t- that I've taken like, you know, direct inspiration from, a lot, of it, a lot of it is music more so than the written word,
0: actually. For me to hear Neil Young, whose precision with language, who's using language to contradict music tone, the idea of playing with contradiction between lyric and music is something that, that idea of contradiction is definitely something that you do so I cannot imagine he's not one of those touch points for you, but I might be mistaken. But who are those touchstones for you?
1: Neil Young, early Bonnie Raitt, was in the, we put that in the movie. I got a lovely letter from Bonnie Raitt, which made my whole year. You know, Robin to me is like one of the great musicians who has this like unbelievable power to make people feel things. So I always listen to Robin when I'm trying to, to to figure it out. Right now I'm listening to Britney Spears. I'm I'm writing something right now that has a a very sort of I'm trying to figure out what the tone is, and I've been listening to Britney Spears.
0: What period, Britney?
1: Toxic, which is a great song. Different for me because I love a female singer songwriter. I love. I'm often in the Lilith Fair <laughs> camp most of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, you gotta you got to figure it out and expand the, the world a little bit. But yeah, I mean, you know, Robin was great. What else was on there? There was just a ton. We actually released the playlist on Spotify. I think you can find it now of every song from the movie. I love also playing with, particularly in this movie, like tonally speaking, I wanted it to feel kind of timeless. I didn't want it to feel too contemporary, which, which is why... Everything from costume to production design to the music that we chose was a, mi- a a sort of mix and match of of old and new.
0: And all the songs are from the past. When and, and the movie's are about so looking at your past,
1: yes. And also, you know, it was also important. We're telling a story about friends in their late thirties, you know, who started their friendships in their early twenties. So for me, it was really important to go back to to what was playing in on the radio in their early 20s. And that's why that Annie Heartbeat song gets gets put into the, got put into the movie, which was a huge one for me in my 20s. That song was just life-changing. I remember many, well, I don't remember them, frankly, but I remember, <laughs> you know, the, the beginnings of Many a Night where that song was uh, was certainly a guiding light. Um But, you know, it's it's important. It's music is the best to mix it up and to, you know, to get to play around with like to throw Robin alongside like early Bonnie Raitt is is a great dream of mine that I saw come through. We had a good time. And eventually, you know, season and I and and Rob Simonson, who did the score, who's just a genius. The three of us got really close on this and eventually sort of. We'd do a pass of the movie where we then sit and I'd say, does any of this make sense? And they would say, no, but it does. And we don't know why, and we don't know how, but it does, even though technically it does not. And I think that really comes down to the specificity of the person selecting it. We all made mixed CDs for each other way back in the day. And a lot of the time, they were just our favorite songs. And while they didn't maybe make the most sense as a collective, the fact that you knew that it was coming from somebody was what binded it all together and made it exciting.
0: Also the thing that came out of making those mix CDs too is they defined friendships because you knew who your friends were based on how much of yourself you want to expose by putting certain songs on on mix CDs.
1: Oh yeah. The songs that I would give to people I had crushes on were very different than the songs that I would give to my friends. <laughs> The songs that you would give to the crush is a. It was very cool music that was trying to, you know, trying to position you as just a very in the know music aficionado. And then the friends got all the got the hard truth.
0: Well, my guest, who I'm sure has didn't put any songs on Network Records on his playlists, is Dan <laughs> Levy. His that's a Canadian reference for you. His new film, <laughs> as writer, director, and star is Good Grief on Netflix. You can also hear the show at kcow.com slash treatment. But I want to get back to this Oz thing for me because I actually feel like the move from from London to Paris is like going to Oz. That really defining these characters when they're in this different place, this place that represents kind of a dream and a nightmare as we find out more and more about it, the Oz
1: parallels really hit me particularly deep. I mean, my character made the choice to go to London to try to find some kind of truth. You know, it was tied to his late husband and there was a lot of mystery wrapped up in it. And I think he went trying to find answers and trying to to figure out, you know, himself a little more. And ultimately, when he got there, it wasn't what he thought it would be. And yet so much good came from the experience so I think you know the, the the analogy or the parallel is the more you talk about it, the more it makes a ton of sense to me. And I wish I wish that I had this as a talking point through all the <laughs> quests we've been doing, because I would have sounded a lot smarter. Um, it's an odd story, ultimately, but no, it, I mean that's that's what it is, and and there's a lot of sincerity to it, which I I think is is similar to that to. The Wizard of Oz as well. There is a, a, a big heartbeat to it.
0: And not only that, but I think the reason I, I keep going back to Oz is by the end, Dorothy is empowered, but also Mark is empowered. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a sublimation that's happened there that they've kind of basically sort of buried their identity and, and not actually had a chance to be themselves. And, and this Journey of Discovery is about them realizing that they've always had the power and that they've always had the talents. And and yeah. that's what, again, it's, it rang particularly true for me. I know I'm kind of harping on this a bit, but that to me is the emotion is also that then they both end with moments of honest sentiment rather than sort of sticky emotion.
1: The film ultimately ends with portraits of who these people were. Literally. <laughs> Literally, which is kind of amazing the more I think about it. We see these people in, you know, in the in the final scene of the movie, I'm not giving too much away, but it's, they come back together after some time apart and you see them as new people, which is very Oz. And then you get the kind of nostalgia of realizing that despite the fact that these people have changed and are different versions of, of themselves and mean different things to each other, That the history of what they had and the experiences of their lives that brought them together in the first place still still hold value.
0: Well, my guest, who I guess I get to talk to only once every six years, so I can't wait until we hear where (laughs) Robin and Britney Spears wind up in his career. Next is Dan Levy. His latest project for Netflix is the comedy drama Good Grief in which he wrote, directed and stars Dan. Great talking to you again. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh, thank you. This was so fun.
0: Writer, director, and actor Dan Levy has come a long way since he was last here for the second season of a show that had yet to premiere on Netflix, Schitt's Creek. He's furthered that evolution with his new project as writer, director, and actor, Good Grief, which is about emotional evolution. You can find Good Grief on Netflix, emotional journeys from returning guests and first-timers at the Archive at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I'm a long-timer here. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. More time ahead. Stay with us.
1: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
2: Introducing the KCRW donation car, designed to be recycled. This first of its kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars.
0: It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. The last time my guest, Andrew Hay, was with us, he was here to talk about his film, Lean on Pete. Which, in some ways, is very different from his new film, "All the Strangers," an adaptation of an incredible book. And also, he's done a few book adaptations. I mean, he's been pretty busy since we've last seen him. He spent, I guess, a, a great deal of time adapting "The North Water," which is an astonishing piece of work for television. First of all, it's great to have you back. It's it's been way too long.
3: Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to speak to you again.
0: Because we talked about. The fact that you'd seen a lot of films on you last year because you worked as a projectionist but i guess i just find myself thinking too in this film a am reminded a lot of the graduate in a lot of ways and that there are lots of glass surfaces and windows or peering at people in this movie
3: that's interesting i think i feel like i'm always obsessed by reflections i went to a q a and someone like, what is it with you and reflections they just every <laughs> single one of your films is someone looking in the mirror there's a reflection of someone looking back at somebody I don't know what it is. It's something just magical about them. And I've talked about it a few times, but I think it's it's often our reflection that we see of ourselves is so different from how we feel. And I think that's such a good technique to use in films, because you can sort of feel the performance of someone watching themselves and being surprised about what they're seeing. And so I always feel like it gives us a good understanding of sort of the private and the public, how the world sees someone and how they really feel. So I feel like it always works quite nicely in films. That's so why I, I think I'm obsessed by reflections. And I wonder if sometimes that's because growing up gay, I had to always pretend in the world that I was something else. Catching my reflection of myself, I felt like it didn't actually reflect who I was. And I think for this film, all of those reflections sort of, sort of speak to that somehow and speak to the development of how he sees himself, Adam, throughout the film.
0: Well, but so much of these in these films that that you've made, even in Looking, characters are pining for something they can't quite have, and this is really, I feel, like this kind of realization of all that yearning that we felt in the projects you've done heretofore.
3: Yeah, I think that's really true. I think there's a yearning in all of the characters that I written what they want is just out of reach and they can't quite find it and they can't grab hold of it and in some weird way that thing is stability I think um and feeling rooted in something whether it's family or the world whatever that might be and in this story he gets to be with the things that he wants again he gets to the thing he's yearned for and longed for he gets to confront and I found that really interesting I think it, it does in many ways it feels like it's My other projects have been leading up to this. And even when I was writing it and making it, I never was really sure what it was, does that make sense? I knew that I was trying to explore and understand something. And I love that about making films. You don't have to know the answer.
0: Well, this is the thing we talked about the last time you were here, in fact, the last time I saw you, which is that so many of the projects that you've done have been these things that are kind of these emotional mysteries where characters are really ferreting out information to try to figure out who and what they are. And this one feels like to me, it's as you said, everything you've done in in its way, especially the artists you must have gone through on the North Water, have all led to this.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I think as you get older, I'm 50 now, and I think when I was young, I thought I'd have got it figured out by now, (laughs) about (laughs) whatever these questions are I'm trying to ask myself. Um, And they just get more complicated, is the truth of it. They don't get easier as you get older, they get more complicated. And the past seems to weigh on you heavier and heavier. I probably always make films that are about somebody trying to understand how the hell they exist (laughs) in themselves as much as in the world. I feel like it's probably my eternal quest and it will probably be what every single one of my films. And even the North Water, which is so different in concept, I guess, it's set in the Arctic and it's men on a boat. But they're still all sort of craving the same existential answers that they uh, often don't get. And so I feel like even on something like that, which is so different than what I've done before, it is still thematically feels so similar.
0: And so much the movie Adam is dressed like an eighties pop star in his white t shirts and jeans <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, and it had to be a conscious thing, wasn't it
3: <laughs> yeah it, you know I think again, it's like you know when you get to a certain age, you're like, "Why am I still dressing like I did twenty years ago? I feel like my style has literally not changed, and I sort of love this idea that we get you know formed in those early periods of our lives that when we're young and in our teens and our twenties, and they end up defining us. For the rest of our, our lives and so it made sense to me that here was a character that even though he's now 45 still dresses like how he used to remember he dressed maybe in the 90s and the things he used to wear which is also a reflection of what people wore in the 80s you know which was the music he loved growing up I think all of these things sort of build up in you um, and you can't it's again you the ghosts aren't they, of your past and they play out in the things that you wear and the way you decorate your house and um, the music you listen to as you grow up.
0: There's almost a through line of films that this reminds me of. I mean, you know, early David Lean stuff or The Enchanted Cottage or places that almost, at first, we don't know if we're seeing something that's meant to be forgiving towards the protagonist or or scary. And and I kind of like the sense of being unsettled that the movie offers us for literally the first 10 minutes.
3: I wanted you to feel like anything could happen. Am I about to see something that's going to become a horror film? Is this a romantic drama? Allowing the audience to be sort of confused about that, but also be asking lots of different kind of questions as the story develops. And I like feeling odd when I'm watching a film, like unsure of where it's leading me. I don't want to know where it's going to go. And I I think it's also about Adam is in this such a strange state of mind where everything is heightened and strange and unusual that you sort of want the audience to feel the same thing. As if they're like hairs are sort of starting to stand up on their on the ends you know so you're feeling something but you aren't quite sure what you're feeling
0: well for me again, just thinking about what the book was and that I was really and again this coming off of North water which is about grappling with unseen terrors and the terrors that you provoked <laughs> by being yourself I was really unsettled by it for a very long time and and what a really hit me about it is the synth drums and so many of these songs of these 80s songs and 90s songs that you use started to become this sort of calming electronic heartbeat in the movie
3: yeah the songs were so vital to me and and they're all scripted pretty much every song that you end up see uh, hearing in the film is in the script you know and they play such an important role you know music is so important anyway It, it, it works as sort of time travel you know i can listen to a song now and i'm like oh my god i feel like i'm 10 years old again or i'm drunk in a nightclub in the early 90s, whatever it might be, you can be dragged back into time. And that's the power of, of that music. But that kind of 80s electronic uh, synth music that was really popular in the, in the UK is so interesting. And it's, it's no its no coincidence that lots of the bands that I chose were queer bands, even if the world might not have known them as being
0: queer at the time. Do you think people didn't know about Frankie Goes to Hollywood? or oh, true. Right? Sure. <laughs> but,
3: it, but it's so strange. They were like number one. Like they had three number one singles you know and they were so queer but at the time no one sort of mentioned it which is so bizarre it's such a bizarre thing when you look back at it i would say they're not all queer in the band only only two of them are queer in the band but still there's definitely but a, a late singer and songwriter that so yes that makes exactly that's, yeah, that's the Holly musical Johnson direction of the band <laughs> exactly um but it was a really fascinating time in british music actually there were a lot of you know the cominards and you know punkski b and petrol boys you know soft sale there were a lot of queer uh, electronic uh, groups that were around so it's a really fascinating time musically and i think it just felt so suited to the film this is someone that's stuck in the 80s he's de- dealing with a trauma from the 80s not just the death of his parents but growing up gay in a very complicated time as it was in the in the 80s obviously so the music made such sense for that
0: well not only that but again there is a, the, this commonality of the synth drum that again starts to feel like almost like an electric Electronic EKG, it's, it starts mm-hmm. to calm the movie down as, and it, for me, it relieves some anxiety. It's just in you know, the kind of that thud that's not a thud of the synth bass yeah, job. and and it's, to me, it's, it's something that it's almost like I don't want to say white noise, but it had a really I think sort of a mediating influence on mm-hmm. on me as I was feeling kind of unsure as you wanted us to feel about what direction the film was going to take.
3: Yeah, and and Emily, who did the com- composed the sort of the original score, it was the same kind of thing—a lot of synths, but also using some organic instruments too, some violins and some cellos and things. But sort of putting them through through a synthesizer to to give it a different kind of tone. And it is the music has, has to hold you kind of delicately, so you just sort of bring you gently through this film, keeping you feeling like you're sort of safe. It's not, it's not, you're not scared. You're sort of feeling OK. It's, you go, you going into some slightly emotional places, you go into some scary places, but we're holding you in a sort of calm space, I suppose. Um, and the music definitely helps that.
0: It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at KCRW.com. Our guest is Andrew Hay, who's rejoined us now after being very, very busy, and his newest project as writer-director is the film All of Us Strangers. Again, you can hear the show at KCRW.com slash The Treatment. Uh, there's a song that his father's listening to, and then there's a Blur song that are kind of connected. But they're all songs, if you hear them at a certain age, they make you feel more sophisticated than you are because there's a plaintive feeling to all the songs, even the ones that go further back than the 80s. It speaks to what you're saying, too. Too about his sort of not making certain emotional transitions, that these songs make you feel like you're grown up uh, because they sound like they're about grown-up concerns, but in fact, they're still about this kind of not knowing who you are.
3: Mm, that's a really lovely way to put it. And I do think that's what music can do for us especially when we're young they allow us to understand or make us feel like we're starting to understand adult concerns and especially with pop music I mean at all pop music but good pop music it sort of expresses big ideas about love and life and and all of those really kind of important things and you listen to it when you're too young almost to really understand those things and that's why it can be quite powerful but I love what you say about how similar in tone some of those songs are, even though they're not from the same period. So yeah, there's an Ink Spot song that is played with the dad, and then you've got a Blur song that's from like the late 90s, and you've got. This, but there's a sort of a melancholy, I think, to all of the music that gets chosen, regardless of the beats per minute of the song. <laughs> there's, a, there's a melancholy at the heart of them. And I sort of love the idea, even in this film, that there's sort of a connection between the son and the father. They both loved the same kind of music, And the grandfather, who we don't ever see, obviously, because he died a long time ago. But, you know, there's an idea that the dad is playing a song that his granddad liked and then he liked. And it seems similar to music that Adam might listen to. I think we're so influenced by our families and and their joy of certain songs, for example, and they feed into who we become as people.
0: It's interesting, too, because in the watching of it, Andrew, I just felt, I was thinking there's something that we've seen happen in ghost stories and movies, too, over the decades. And again, it goes back, we go back to 40s movies where you could go to a magic place. And again, I don't know if you've ever seen this old film, The Enchanted Cottage, where this disfigured couple go into this place. They become the dream versions of themselves. There are so many films like that that are kind of a sort of studio magic realism, but there's some, also this, this physical aspect to the film, I think, grounds it, too, because you're using a lot of this music for its original purpose, which is to, say, dance music. And there's an extended mm-hmm. dance sequence that sort of take Adam into a fugue state. And he goes through so many different emotional states. It's almost like he's going through the five stages of death during that sequence.
3: And that enchanted cottage, I've never seen, but I'm going to see that film because that sounds absolutely amazing. And I feel like already, I'm like, I think I should try and remake that film. It's a perfect, <laughs> it's a perfect setup. Um, I, there is something about that those movies. I I'm big like the Powell and Pressburger, absolutely uh, fan, and their films exist in some sort of reality that's not reality, and uh, and allow sort of the dream world to come into the real world in a way that feels completely organic. I sort of love that in cinema. And that can be the power of cinema. It can take you through these strange emotional states uh, visually. And as you say, in that club, he goes through all kinds of things. And the music is that thing that can power it forward. And it was one of my favorite sequences to to make in the film. It was it was a really enjoyable one to do. I do love that, that ability that cinema can do to take you to somewhere that doesn't make sense, but somehow makes complete emotional sense.
0: We can't not talk about Andrew Scott, who plays Adam, who has to do so much. He, you ask so much of him. And, such a, and It's a really spare and shockingly short film. And a lot of what you do, a lot of what he has to do, is this thing we've come to expect from you. It's done through him listening rather than him talking. I think he's
3: just incredible in the film. And it's all on his shoulders. Of course it is. So much is on his shoulders. He has to do so much and express so many kind of complicated, complicated feelings. And for me, I wanted all of that emotion to feel so genuine and come out in genuine, you know, genuine moments. And I think he just does a he does a beautiful job. You feel like he's sort of understanding himself as the film develops. And I, you know, I know it meant so much to um Andrew as an actor as well. I know he really, you know, he threw himself fearlessly into the project knowing that it's it's quite an exposing role emotionally. It's just exciting to watch when you see an actor kind of putting everything they've got into something. and I feel that you know it's, it feels very very special and I always hope that they feel safe within that environment to kind of expose themselves emotionally in that way.
0: I guess one of the things I was thinking too, and this is something we've talked about you doing as well. In, in your work, is taking people that we have associations with, you know, be it Travis Fimmel or Charlotte Rampling in the past, and here it's Claire Foy and Jamie Bell, who we associate Claire with a certain kind of glamour, and we watch Jamie grow up this the point where he would have probably been this character, and now he's playing the, the father, or the, using Colin Farrell in Northwater. You still understand the power that visual iconography has on an audience and you like to employ that don't you
3: yeah i mean i think it's essential you can't there's no point pretending that people don't know the roles that (laughs) these people have done before like of course they do they're not unknowns like you know claire foy's played the queen like that's always going to be part of it which sort of makes sense for someone playing a mother let's face it all (laughs) mums like to feel like they're the queen so it totally makes sense Um, But it is true. And I like just to take somebody that you know and you like for something and just subvert it, not completely, but subverted enough so it feels refreshing and it feels new. And I know talking to Jamie Bell, like he loved this idea that, you know, he was Billy Elliot, this kid, you know, whose dad was was this harsh kind of person that didn't want him to do (laughs) what he wanted to do. And now he gets to play the dad. And it was kind of lovely. And it also made me feel incredibly old because I remember you know, watching Jamie when he was just a little boy. Me too. (laughs) Now it's kind of terrifying. But I think it's great. It's the same with Charlotte Rampling. You know, she had had a glamour. And I was like, I still think if you put her in a different environment, it makes sense for that story because you know there's something inside her wanting something else, which is what that character in 45 years needed as well. And the same turning Colin into, you know, psychopathic (laughs) wailer just made sense to me.
0: I guess we should say at some point there's something in we see these actors in these films, we think, yeah, why didn't somebody ask them to do that? Because in seeing Jamie in, in this role, as, it's almost like he got to go back in time and play Billy's father as the kind of guy he wanted to be and the guy mm-hmm. he is by the end of the movie. It's really powerful. And also seeing Claire playing a character who would have existed in a time period where Elizabeth would have been her queen. I mean, I just you yeah. can't help but make all these associations, can you? Yeah, and it's funny because you know I was talking to Claire about it, and she's—I don't
3: think she's ever played a role like this. She's always playing kind of larger-than-life people, let's say, and this is just an ordinary mum living in suburbia, which is closer to you know Claire's own family life. And so I, I think it was really interesting for her. And I think she's quite excited about that, about playing that, just a regular mum in the '80s, and I think she does it just beautifully as, as as well. But yeah, I think people just limit what actors can do, or they don't think sort of around the edges of what they can do. Um, and to me, that's the most exciting part of the whole process is seeing there thinking, okay, who is right for this film? Who is going to be surprising, but not like stumped casting, which is the worst. They've got to feel like when you've seen the film, you're like, oh yeah, they make total sense as that role. But you want to be surprised that they're playing the role to start with.
0: Well, my guess reminds me that there are limits because we're out of our time. So that's our limit here is Andrew Hay, his new <laughs> film. As writer and director is Oliver strangers Again, Andrew, thank you so much for doing this and good talking to you again.
3: Brilliant. Thank you. Always a
2: pleasure. Maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should. Maybe I didn't love you. Quite as often as I could.
0: Playing with expectations in terms of actors and subject is what writer-director Andrew Haig does. He continues that idea with his new film, All of Us Strangers. It's The Treatment, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. And here's The Treat from Leslie Odom Jr., Tony Award-winning actor and star Pearly victorious, which ends his Broadway run next month, on a Pulitzer Prize winner that he more than admires and thinks would be a welcome addition to what used to be called The Great White Way.
2: I hope you'll find some peace of mind in this lifetime. This is Leslie Odom Jr., and I want to talk about the treat I hope you find some Kendrick Lamar the god the brother the cousin the, the man the king
3: I've been going through something
2: 1855 days I've been going through something be afraid
1: what is it what is a mini That
2: last album Mr. Morale Man is a is a whole universe. It is worlds unto itself, and I am so grateful.
1: What is a neighborhood retible? That is a snitch on a pedestal. What is a house with a better view? A family broken in variables. What is a rapper with jewelry?
2: I got to meet him. You know, he walked close enough to me that I could grab his hand and tell him what he meant to me. I thanked him for speaking the truth into our generation. There's things that he's saying with his whole chest, and the the beautiful thing about the truth is that uh, oftentimes it is contagious, like everything else. And so, watching somebody else walk in their truth and speak the truth gave me the courage to do the same thing, and gives me the courage to do the same thing. Do
1: you love me? Trust me Can I trust you Don't judge me I'm a diehard It ugly Too passionate It ugly mm. His concerts
2: are so theatrical that he's kind of doing a Broadway show around the world. You know, he brings Broadway with him, but man, would I be there? To, I'd be there to sweep the floors if he ever wanted to come to Broadway. To sweep the floors. Yeah. We all got enough to
1: lie about My truth too complicated to hide now Can I open up? Is it
2: if you haven't listened yet, it's a double album. It is so worthy of your time. Go give Kendrick an hour and be blessed. I hope you
0: see the God in me. I hope you can see. If it's up, stay down from me. A treat. Kendrick Clamaris, Mr. Morale, and The Big Steppers from Tony Award winner and Oscar nominee Leslie Odom Jr. Randall Park's notes on our unique hip-hop artists and other equally distinctive treats play on at kcrw.com slash treat. We press on. This week's show, as always, produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. Help this week from Laura Kondorajan and Nick Lamponi. For better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell.
1: It's The Treatment. I want to see the family stronger. I want to see the money longer. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.